You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we'll be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. And it's just two of us this week. Yeah. Which is crazy because we are doing the top 10 classic series seasons. It's disappointing, really. Well, yeah, we had five people last yeah. time. Yeah. And this time we're doing a big one. Right. And yeah. it's just two of us. Oh, oh God. Which means. Well, yeah, we can speed through it. Well, we'll get through it in 45 minutes then. Yep. <laughs> I got three films to review. Okay. I'll do one now, one halfway through, and one at the end. Okay. That'll give me time to remember what they are. Okay. Right, this morning, I watched Manina, the Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. Right. Have you any idea what that is? No. If I tell you it's also... Is it Fraggle Rock? No. If I tell you it's also called, in America, The Girl in the Bikini, does that give you a better idea? Not hugely. Okay, it's Bridget Bardot's first film. Oh, okay. Well, it's not. Technically, it's a second film, because she had a bit part in a film before it. But right. It's the first one in which she's <clears throat> in which she's playing a major role. Right. 1952, France. Right. She's 18 years old. Actually, the most famous thing about this film is that while they were shooting it, they took a picture of her naked on the beach. Right. And that naked picture of Bridget Bardot at the age of 18 is the most famous thing about this film. Wow. Who's, the, who's the director? <sighs> I can't even remember. It was atrocious. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it was so bad. And when I say bad, it kind of is so bad it's good right. in some okay. places. Yeah. Some of it is shockingly bad, like really badly written, really badly directed, really badly acted. Right. That it literally would have been put to shame by a school play. Okay. But some of those bits are actually quite funny because they are so bad. So it's not one to add to my list of films to blog. Okay, that's fine. Although you might as well, because the DVD, the DVD, the Blu-ray is quite funny. Right. The Blu-ray, by way of extras has an entire other 90-minute feature film on it. Right. In standard def. Okay. <clears throat> Plus, and when I said, it's so bad that, there's another extra feature on there, which is a little five-minute news piece about a s- sword-fighting duel that the director of the film once had with a film critic. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So you can imagine what the film critics were saying about his films in order for him to challenge one of them to a duel. Yeah, it's good publicity. <laughs> well, she's in it. She spends most of the time... Well, no, actually, she doesn't turn up until the halfway point. Right. And she spends most of the second half of it in a bikini. Okay. Hence the girl in the bikini. Okay. Um, there's not really an awful lot more to say than that. It's atrocious, but in a sort of... Slightly charming way at points. It's got a story you wouldn't write home about. Right. And there are no surprises or twists along the way. So Fraggle Rock would be better? Yes. Okay. Let's talk top ten classic series seasons, shall we? Okay. While I try and remember what the other two films are. Okay. 
<clears throat> I tell you what, I've also got three lots of comments. And rather than read out the comments with the seasons, let's do the comments like I'm doing the film reviews. I'll do a film review, I'll read out one person's comments. Right. And we'll not say where those seasons have come in the list. Okay. And then we'll do a bit of the list. Okay. So, let's start with Miles Northcott. Miles says, I'm very much a Hinchcliffe Holmes man. I absolutely adore season 14. Every single story is a standout. And for me, Talons is at the bottom of the pile. And it's still brilliant. Season 13 is but a mere smidgen behind, and both seasons contain many of the very best Doctor Who stories ever. Terror of the Zygons, Pyramids of Mars, Brain of Morbius, Seeds of Doom, and every single story in season 14. Production values were top-notch, the cast for each story was excellent, and their performances were magnificent. Gabriel Wolf-Sutek, Philip Maddox-Solon, Tony Beckley's Harrison Chase being the absolute standouts. The music was Dudley Simpson at the top of his game too, City of Death aside, with Geoffrey Bergen also producing two notable scores. Season 12 was brilliant, but clearly the Hinchcliffe-Holmes partnership was finding their way, and while Ark in Space and Genesis of the Daleks are bona fide classics, the other three stories are merely very good rather than outstanding. He then goes on and says, Season 18 is beautifully crafted with the new broom making sweeping changes. The visuals are wonderful, and the incidental music is starkly different, but also highly effective and really memorable. The title sequence of music was a real shock at the time, but has become many people's favourite, and the way the whole season builds to a dramatic conclusion with the themes of change and entropy entropy prevalent throughout is very well put together. Season 10 may be an odd choice for some, but it is very strong overall. The Three Doctors is a fantastic celebration of 10 years of the show. Carnival of Monsters is an underrated gem. I'm not sure it's that underrated, to be frank. It's getting more rated. Yeah. The Frontier Planet 12-parter is as epic in its own way as the Daleks' master plan. Sorry. And the Green Death is one of those iconic stories which brought the Joe Grant, Roger Delgado era to a fitting close. Many other by not having Roger Delgado in it. Well, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Many other seasons, actually. Oh yeah, he's gone fourteen, thirteen, twelve, ten, eighteen, ten. Then hasn't he? Many other seasons just missed out. The very first season is a corker, as is season five with its base under siege format and a plethora of memorable monsters. He's going to write about every single season here, isn't he? Okay. Season seven, I expect to score very highly with its more adult tone. Season 17 is such good fun and has, in my view, the best story ever in it. Season 15 loses its way a little after Hinchcliffe and Holmes depart, but starts very strongly, and I love the invasion of time. Season 19 carries on the good work of season 18 and gives (laughs) Davison a great start to his tenure. (laughs) And season 26 was really getting the show back on track after a bit of a production trough. Season 25 also made the cut too, but more because of remembrance than anything. Um, well, Miles, I don't know what you thought of season 2 or season 24, but perhaps you could write in and let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Good comments. It's pretty uncontroversial <clears throat> comments. Yeah. Um, only two... Seasons from the entire run of 26 
didn't get any votes at all. Oh, should we talk about those? Well, do you want to yes, guess what they are? Uh, probably um, Trial of the Time Lords, so 23. And? Mm, maybe 20. No, you would have voted for 24. Why? I wouldn't have voted for 24. Oh, 24? Okay, neither of those were correct. Oh, really? Actually, season Two. 20, season 20, right. season 23, and season 24 yeah. each got one vote in oh, really? last place. Was it the same person? Well, no, it had to be three different people okay. if they were all in last place. Oh, okay, okay. Um, I will say who the people were because... Season 16? <clears throat> and one of them gets a comment, so we'll know right, why. Okay. But Phil Markham put season 23 in his fifth place spot. Okay. Pete Murphy put season 24 in his fifth place spot. Oh. And Ian Martin put season 20 in his fifth place spot. Okay. And the two that didn't get any votes at all were season 22... Right. Okay. Yeah, that's a. So I mean, I mean, I know I don't like season twenty-two well, maybe, at all, but well, I was surprised it didn't get any votes. I mean, I, I guess the ones that don't get any votes are the ones that aren't notable, and the ones that aren't previously thought <coughs> really, really bad, and they get a sort of a yeah. But season twenty-two is pretty notable. It's the I one mean, where Doctor 20- Who got cancelled. I mean, it's better than season twenty-three. There's no. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's pretty much 50-50 on that. Right. I'd, I think those two are the worst two seasons of Doctor Who. I mean, for reasons I've gone into before yeah. on the podcast. The other one that didn't get any votes was, and this one's maybe a surprise, season 11. That's the Time Warrior, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, okay. Planet of the Spiders, Death of the Daleks, hmm. and OK Monster of Peladon. But I think overall, the other four stories are... I think it's the. It sounds like the mediocre ones, the the, the ones that are sort of like well, forgettable. I, I suppose eleven is the one after ten, yeah, with the anniversary, and the one before twelve when the new broom comes yeah. in. Yeah, but I don't know. I, I've always thought of season eleven as a bit of a not really sort of greatest hits, but Barry Letts and Terran Sticks doing their thing. At the top of their game. Yes, it's slick. Yeah. But that's not necessarily... <clears throat> I don't know. It doesn't necessarily make it stand out. Well, I which don't it know. Needs to. I mean, with the, you know. Yeah, but they, there are things in that season that do make it stand out. The Time Warrior is the first time Doctor Who goes into history properly, apart yes. from Atlantis, since the Abominable Snowmen. Yeah, so at the, at the time it's broadcast, it stands out. But now that's not a... I mean, we we look I at think the time, it does a bit. the Time Warrior <clears throat> now, and it just looks like a standard historical pseudo historical story. Yeah, but but it's and like the, it's, it's the only Pertwee one. Yes, which makes it stand out. I think. Yeah, and then you've got the Mike Yates arc. Yeah, between Invasion of the Dinosaurs and Planet of the Spiders. Yeah, which stands out to me as one of the most sort of subtly radical things that Doctor mm. Who did in the seventies. Yeah. Because you didn't give regular characters that kind of development yeah. in Doctor Who. You'd never get it anywhere else in the series up until maybe Turlo. Yes. I mean, Invasion of the Dinosaurs is one of the best-paced, structured stories mm. that there is, really. So I was quite surprised. Mm. I mean, not shocked, shocked, but I think, again, as I've said many times while we've been doing these top tens, and we're going to do 10 of them now. Okay. It seems to be our autumn season this year is doing top 10s and why not? 
There's right. going to be a changing of the guard, so I suppose it's timely. Um, yeah, I've said many times, I think if people were voting for their top ten as opposed to their top five from which we're making a top ten, yes, a lot of these seasons might have come in at like sixth, yeah. seventh, yeah. eighth, whatever. Yes, yeah. So... But still, I thought it was quite surprising. I, mean, the, the bad, I think the bad seasons always have their champions. And if you're a yeah. champion of a bad season, you're going to be really a champion of a bad season. So you because you'll go for it. Five. So yeah, yeah. the top five. It's the, it's the ones that... The middle. I mean, I'm yeah. not a champion of season 11. I just like some of the stories. Yeah, but yeah. I wouldn't like... I wouldn't say... So I'd, I'd say I was more of a champion of like the later McCoys because, you know, some... The, they kind of they've kind of come in for a bashing. And well, yeah, and I think what you're saying is right. Season eleven is just not a season that's in anybody's top yeah. five. Yeah. So, as you say, some of those other seasons, people because when people do a top five, they'll vote for not not everybody, and I'm generalising, but you'll know what your favourites are. Mm. So maybe two, three, four of those are your favourites. Yeah. And then maybe you'll stick one, possibly two in, where you'll think, that's probably not going to get many votes. So I'll bung that in just so that it at least gets something, yes. like you said. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to go through all the rest of what didn't get into the top ten, because then the top ten itself won't be a surprise. Okay. And um, I do think the top ten is quite surprising. But... Um, I will say that in 11th place, and I did this spread on the percentage. Okay. 11th place got 8.4%, right. whereas 12th place was only 5.8%. Okay. So 11th place only narrowly missed the top 10. Right. And that was a surprise. Not a surprise that it narrowly missed the top 10, but a surprise that it was that high, which is season four. Okay. Because largely missing... Sort of an interim season between sort of Verity Lambert yeah. and the changes she was making, and see, season three, which had things like the Daleks master planning, mm. and then season five is the monster season. But season four is kind of the nothingy season. It's where base under siege starts to get a foothold, but they're not really doing it quite right yet. Weirdly, weirdly, because we've just voted on on the our top five writers for Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, for no particular reason, I didn't necessarily vote for this person, although I did. I was thinking of David <laughs> David Whittaker. And I was thinking maybe that season, because I think, you know, in that season four with those, because it's the got two, two, Dalek the two Whittaker yeah, yeah. Dalek stories. And it is, season five, I think, is is slowly going down in the rankings because people are realising that it is a really good story, which is based on the siege, but just repeated multiple times. Mm -hmm. Whereas season four, it's got that kind of variety. It's got that kind of. It's got a bit of variety. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, each story is. feels different. It has its own identity. After the Highlanders, though, well, other than the two historicals, mm. the uh, smugglers and the Highlanders, and then two stories at the end of the season, Faceless Ones and Evil of the Daleks. The rest of it really is kind of based on the siege. Setting up what season five is going to be. Yeah. I mean, but I guess, I mean, the Tenth Planet's quite high in 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 status at the moment, considering it's about to be effectively remade, <laughs> remade at Christmas. So there's that. And... and well, yeah. And what I was going to say is, I think season four, because 
that extra episode of The Underwater Menace was found mm. and relatively recently came out on DVD and people yeah. started to reappraise that story mm-hmm. in light of being able to see a bit more trout in. Yeah. And because of the Blu-ray and DVD of the animation of Power of the Daleks, yeah. I wonder if it's more just that season four has been on people's minds a bit yeah. more. And Big Finish are mining it now for the stories as well, aren't they? Recasting Ben um, and Polly? Or was that a while back? No, that was quite recently, yeah. So I don't know how much of an effect that'll have had, but yeah, yeah. it all keeps it in the public yeah. eye. Yeah. And also it's it's one of the it's one of those seasons that doesn't exist. So, so part, it still has partly, a partly of about, status, if yeah. I was gonna vote for it, I'd vote for it thinking I want to see this season. Mm-hmm. It's one of the lost sort of this kind of mythic lost seasons. Should we move into the top ten then? Okay. Alright. In ninth place jointly two seasons mm. um on 9.5 percent so not quite on 10 percent, but almost getting there um one of which is season five mm-hmm. so obviously as we've just said following on from season four the base under siege thing and the other one being season 19 okay i don't know whether to be surprised that that's in the top 10 or not peter davison it's one of those doctors who's popular and has a certain cachet with a sizable enough proportion of fandom. Yeah. Who probably generally consider 19 the best of his three seasons, mm-hmm. despite Caves of Androzani, because 20 kind of missed the mark so much. Yeah. And because 21 was the start of, well, what I suppose you'd call the rot that sets in mm. with the. Uh, Increased levels of violence and cynicism. Mm-hmm. So 19 is the season where you've got a tremendous amount of variety. Yes. So you start off with, uh, well, not literally in this order, but you start off with a couple of uh, conceptual stories in the Christopher H. Bidmead mould. Mm. And you finish up with a couple of um, Sayward stories. We don't ones in the middle and ones towards the end, but you know what I mean. Yeah, this is the trajectory of the season. Whereas in between, you've got three story ideas where basically John Nathan Turner is just saying, "Let's make a Doctor Who story." I don't know what it's supposed to be like. Let's do one that's an all historical. Mm-hmm. Let's do one on a spaceship, and let's do one with Concord. Yeah. So it's got this weird variety, mm-hmm. lots of tonal shifting. And no kind of consistency across the series, but it also has. So there's a. I mean, the <clears> thing <throat> that connects oddly connects this with season five for me is that they both feel like a fresh start. So season five is when Troughton finally starts enjoying his role before he gets tired of his role and after he's settled into his role. Whereas Davison seems to hit the ground running quite quite well with season 19 he seems to get jaded a little bit after it the, the stories start to 20s yeah where, whereas, where... whereas this is sort of you still get the impression that he's enjoying it but also it had a lot more to do because because by the end of his time on the show tom baker felt like he was weighing it down it felt like i mean we'll probably get to season 18 but there was a feeling that oh it, god i hope not it, there was a feeling that it was decaying and that's, you know, quite a moving thing to watch and it's quite sort of profound. But at the same time, you don't want a light, <coughs> light entertainment 
drama series to feel like it's it's moving towards its death. So, so 19, is a fresh 19 start. feels like a rebirth, I think. And 5, of course, has with the discoveries of the web of fear and the enemy of the world. Because 5 was always considered one of the classics. And it's further down the list yeah. than it probably would have been five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But having said that, it could have dropped off the list. Yes. But I think the quality of the enemy of the world and the web of fear yeah, yeah, yeah. is what's kept it there. I mean, they repeat the same story again and again, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, I mean, it's, it's a still, story that works. You know, it's, still, it's still watchable. And if you were watching season five weekly, 25 minutes at a time, mm-hmm. across nine months or whatever it was, yeah. it wouldn't have probably felt as repetitive as it does with hindsight looking at it all in one go. No, I mean, no. it would have felt like this is what Doctor Who does. He turns up somewhere, yes. and the monster tries to invade that place, and he sorts it out. I mean, it's a, it's that point where Doctor Who starts becoming more about spectacle than plot for a time. Before it sort of kicks back in the other yeah, direction the yeah. following year. Yeah. Yeah. Should we do eighth place then? Okay. And this is 10%. Of the available marks, and this is season eight. Okay, well, that's the master season, yep, the one where the unit family finally beds in. Yeah, well, I it's good. Well, I didn't vote for it. I don't no, think. well, we're talking but, about why have these seasons ended up where they yes. are in the list, and that is the second highest poetry. Yeah, so that comes above 10, 11, and nine. Mm. So, uh, it's one of those odd seasons. It's one of those ones where a lot of people, and I'm one of them, think it's probably the best of the Pertwees mm. because it's where the format that they had in season seven and didn't really know what to do with. <clears throat> Finally, they figure out what to do with it mm. and they do that thing. And I, I think they do it better in its first year. It's one of yeah. those... It's one of those ones where it's almost like it's a difficult second album, but with a new lineup in the band. Yes, so they actually yeah. make it better than the first and then probably don't know quite what to do. Well, it's afterwards. almost like season seven is a pilot for yeah. the idea and they sort of reboot it a second time with season eight. With a, And they can't do it. Having learned lessons. They from can't do it seven. again. It's a one shot. Mm. They, they had to make the changes after it, but Barry Letts is such a good producer. He knows that he has to make changes each year. He has to, he has to sort of continue to develop the series. And season seven, season eight <clears throat> has well, it starts off with Terror of the Autons, which I know is a bit of a cartoon story, mm. but also I think it's Doctor Who doing cartoon stories at its very best. Yeah, I mean, Terror of the Autons is the template which Russell T Davis used for like the first five episodes mm. of the reboot in two thousand and five, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. Um, it's got things like The Mind of Evil, which is a yes. throwback to Season 7, yeah. which means there's something in there for Season 7 fans. Mm-hmm. It's got Colony in Space, which I think is underrated, yep. but actually oh, like is a, yeah, it's a it's a good analogous outer space story. With, it's a Colony in Space kind of, and I think it's a bit early for Survivors, but it's got that, it's got it's that, that, got feel, that kind yeah. of yeah pioneering, sort of self-sustaining feel to it. Mm. And it's got the demons, of course, yes. which is very yeah. highly thought of. Yes. Still, yeah. in spite of a certain amount of revisionism. Yeah. I mean, season eight is. It has the feel of solid Doctor Who, 
But in the introduction of the Master, it kind of makes it solid but inspired Doctor Who. Because regardless of what you think about the fact that they used him in all five stories, and regardless of whether you think Doctor Who needed that character, mm. that character has lived yes. for nearly 50 years now since he was introduced. Mm-hmm. It was an inspired decision to yeah. introduce him. There's also something about something about the look of that series, that season... It feels like an expensive season. It's like uh, Barry Letts's canniness, his his producing abilities mm. have sort of kicked into gear. So he's starting to spend money in the right way. So with the stunts and the action, there seems to be. I mean, you get there that was in a lot of that in seven, seven but, yeah. But here it's more. Season seven was very much here's a stunt and here's here's a, a whole episode set in this lab, yeah, and this yeah. standing set, this standing set. With season eight, instead of the standing sets, you have CSO, but that's really only Terror of the Autons. I mean, as far as I can remember after that, it becomes a lot more sort of... Well, you had some of that already, I think. I mean, the Demons is incredibly sort of... Well, season eight defines and refines all the things that they were doing, doesn't it? Yeah. Basically. Mm -hmm. And also the cast feel like they're having fun. Mm. So... So whereas before, yeah. in season seven, Pertwee's yes. slightly uncomfortable because he's still not sure quite what he's doing. Yeah. When you get Katie Manning and um, when John Levine becomes a regular and when Richard Franklin joins mm. the team yeah. and because Pertwee's relationship with Nick Courtney's settled down, yeah. by season eight, it does feel... And you see, you can see it on screen, and especially yes. by the time you get to the demons, yeah. it does feel like they're all enjoying working together and yeah. they're enjoying making a television program. And any television program where the people are making it are enjoying making it, yes. unless they're enjoying it so much, you know. Well, this is the this is the fine balance. I think this yeah, is the yeah. reason why it's not my one of the reasons why it's not my favourite is because I think sometimes with adversity, you get a stronger a stronger drama. So with Tom Baker, oh, yeah. some of the stronger Tom Baker bits are the bits where Tom Baker isn't just enjoying himself. The fact that he's gets to season 17, 18, 17, 16, and he's obviously enjoying himself, that's... Too much. Yeah. Well, this was the uh, balance I was talking about. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at things like Tennant and Tate, you can see yeah. them enjoying themselves too much sometimes. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I think it I think it's a, fine, it's a fine line, I think. Yeah. So that maybe the demons just crosses that line at times. I don't know. I think season eight pretty much holds that line. Mm. I think because they're just starting to enjoy yeah. making Doctor Who, yeah. perhaps. Yeah, yeah. In seventh place, on 11.1%, is season 18. Okay. I'm actually surprised it wasn't higher. I thought season 18, I don't like it. I don't like my Doctor Who gloomy. I like my Doctor Who quirky, really. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, I'm generalising. But season 18 is just a lot of gloom. And a lot of ideas that I don't think make a lot of sense. But it has fallen lower than I expected it to. I think it's original. I think... It doesn't. It doesn't feel like Doctor Who before or after it. So there's something special about it. Bidmead well, yes. Bid script editing, and it has to be Bidmead. Bidmead's influence on it. It feels like season seven. Yes. Yeah. In there, it's an odd season now. Yeah, and I think that's an appealing thing because you can then. Well, yeah. So <clears> when <throat> you're 
when you're talking about ranking the seasons, sometimes I'm thinking season eight, season nine, which one do I vote for? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. season 13, 14, which one do I vote for? But but season between... 18 is something that I can like say that is a coherent season. Well, it stands entirely by yeah. itself. So it's like, like seven. A, yeah, it's like a mini series, really. Aye. And it has images in it which are unbelievable. So, yes, the, it, st- the stories. Well, I think, I still think Melka is a great piece of design. I think there's I lots, know, of, I lots of images the in Logopolis. Well, maybe, maybe think, it is my age. I don't know, because I thought Logopolis was a really bland-looking story that right. didn't have any images that burned themselves into the memory. I, I don't know. It goes, for me, it goes from high concept to high concept. It's the, the basic plot that doesn't hold together with Logopolis, but because the concepts are so kind of baroque and rich, it doesn't really matter. And you're also, you're also watching it waiting for... Tom Baker to well, yeah, that's about so it. that's the kind of the, the drive to it. I don't know. I didn't find the concepts remotely engaging all throughout. Mm. The only ones I really the East Space trilogy, yeah, in the middle, Warriors of Gate because of the cocteau thing. Warriors of Gate. Warriors Gate. Yeah. What did I say? Warriors of Gate. Oh, Warriors but, Gate because of the cocktail yeah, thing and yeah. all whatnot. Full circle, because it actually felt like a Doctor Who story. Yeah. And State of Decay, because it had a little bit of that old sensibility from pre-John Nathan Turner. Yeah. But outside of those three, I really didn't enjoy... I mean, Megloss feels like the, a story from the previous season with all the, the life drained out of it. Which, that's for me, that's the weakest. I think Warriors Gate really... I, appreciate, I appreciate, but I don't find that much fun. Miles said season 18 had great visuals. It was 18 he was talking about, wasn't it? Yeah. But I just, I don't know, maybe I was just the wrong age. I just thought the visuals, in apart from the marshmen climbing out of the marsh, I don't really think there was anything in 18 that actually stuck in the memory the same way I as, say, something like, the master in the deadly assassin when you finally see him and I don't know, the crinoid and I mean it's there's not there's nothing B movie. There's there isn't a sort of definable apart but from But this is it, this is what Doctor Who is. It's B movies. It is, but I think it can also be the design of Keeper of Traken, that kind of that kind of It just feels like the BBC do what they do well, but there's yeah. nothing to distinguish it. Um I don't know, but you put you put Tom Baker's Doctor in the middle of it, and I think that's when it starts to become. It's like Tom Baker's Doctor has been has been airlifted into one of the BBC adaptations of Shakespeare, and then you just let him go. The problem is that but that it's not already... Tom Baker's Doctor; it's Tom Baker's season eighteen Doctor, and he's not given the chance to sort of. If the season fourteen Tom Baker Doctor had been put into the middle of, of keeping Mask track of Mandragora, then suddenly you get the Mask of Mandragora. Yeah, and, and if you ask me of the two, which is the more memorable, I'd have to say The Mask of Mandragora. Yeah, but I think, I think I still think the design, I still think it holds up. And the, the, the direction, See, direction of Warrior's Gate is, you know... Nuts. Right from the leisure yeah. hive, there's something about season 18 where this whole costumes instead of clothes thing is coming in. Yes. You look at yeah. Leisure Hive and they're all wearing costumes. Nobody's wearing yeah. clothes. Yeah. And so it carries on mm. pretty much throughout the series. And I'm just thinking, uh, okay, you can see a hand on the tiller at the design, mm. but that hand doesn't seem to be 
doesn't seem to be looking at what works for the story, but what works for the screen. And to me, that undermines the story. Well, weirdly, it feels like a bit like a sort of throwback to a Hartnell, to a Hartnell style, which is sort of very interior. But doesn't work and in colour no, and in no. the 1980s, yeah. is it? Yeah. But it does make it distinctive. Maybe. Weirdly. All right, let's do um, the next one up, because then there is a huge leap to the top five. Okay. The next one up in sixth place on 15.8%, which is a bit of a leap up from 18. Mm-hmm. This is going to shock a lot of people. Season 25. Mm-hmm. The Happiness Patrol, Silver Nemesis, Greatest Show in the Galaxy, and Remembrance of the Daleks. Yes. Well, clearly people aren't voting for season 25 just on the basis of Remembrance of the Daleks. It's possible. <laughs> no, well, yes and no. I don't think they're voting entirely for Remembrance no, of the Daleks. No. Otherwise, season 17 would be in the top 10 for City of Death. Yes, yeah. You know, and season 21 would be for the Caves of Androzani. Yeah. So, it's obviously more than just that, but I was quite surprised to see season 25 yeah. in the top 10 at all, let alone, you know, sixth place. So how many episodes are in season? It's four, eight... It's four stories with 14 six, episodes. It's four, eight... It's a very short season. Yeah. So a, a significant proportion of that is Remembrance of the Daleks. Well, roughly, which, just over a quarter of it. Yeah. Which is which is quite hefty. But also it's... But it's great to show in the galaxy as well, thought of. And Happiness Patrol has been completely reappraised. Yes. And I think, I think the... It's a it's a McCoy reappraisal, isn't it? That, yes. That started with season twenty six, mm-hmm. and it's slowly and it's, and it's kindly backwards. filtered backwards, and it's almost it's almost convinced me about bits of season twenty four. Oh, it's, right. it's getting there. Oh, I think there's two great stories in season twenty four. Yeah, and two not so great stories, but right. <clears throat> but twenty five, even yeah. Silver Nemesis is starting to get people who are saying, okay, well, it's not a great story, but it is fun. I always liked Silver Nemesis. I'd, I'd like the making of Silver Nemesis more than Silver Nemesis itself. Well, but I that, think, that kind of adds to it for me. I think Silver Nemesis is one of those ones that makes you tut a lot, but mm. also there's fun to be had. Yeah. And actually, some of the nicest scenes in Silver Nemesis are just seeing Seventh Doctor and Ace yes. go and see a jazz band. Wandering around the countryside. Yeah, yeah. There's a part of me that thinks, why couldn't we have a lot more of them just wandering around the countryside? It's very sunny. Mm. And that that genuinely helps. There's something about The Deadly Assassin that I really like just because that whole episode, it's clearly quite hot (laughs) where Mm. it is. It's clearly really quite sunny. And that feels exotic. Well, actually, and Silver Nemesis being on videotape helps with that because actually yeah. it feels sunnier than it does in The Deadly Assassin because yes. obviously film, yeah. yeah, without sort of careful grading, mm. makes things feel cooler. Yes, yeah. Season 25, though, a bit of a shocker. Yes. Shall we, uh, since we're racing through this, have another film review, okay. some more quotes, okay. and then get stuck into the top five? Yes. Okay, what other films did I watch? I have watched also um, The Haunting. Oh. The 1963 one, the Robert Wise one. That's good. I've seen that recently. Have you? Yeah. It is a great film. Although, there are a few things about It's been a few years since the last time I saw it. I've seen it many times over the years. And the performance from Claire, not Claire Harris, from Julie Harris. Mm. 
Claire Bloom and Julie Harris is a little bit too histrionic at times, I think. Yeah. It feels very pre-method. Mm. Yeah. And that it's a very sort of pronounced performance of somebody who's undergoing a breakdown. Yes. And there's quite a lot of voiceover. Yeah. Of uh, sort of internal monologues, mm. which start to get a little bit irritating. Yeah. But on the whole, it's Robert Wise... Looking back at the work he did with Orson Welles mm. 20 years previously and bringing a lot of the stuff that Orson Welles had done with cameras and with sound design yeah. and with actors and production design and all of that and bringing that to a horror film. And essentially, the impression I was left with is if Orson Welles had made a proper horror film mm. as opposed to a couple of sort of more psychological horrors in things like The Stranger and that... Yeah. If he'd have done a proper horror film, it would have looked a bit like this. Mm-hmm. Although it might not have been this story. It's a really good film. Yes. It's perhaps not quite the absolute classic. No. Which is why maybe... It, well, it was a bit of a... It wasn't a flop. It made money. But it wasn't a big film on its release. Right. It became a bit of a cult film in the 90s, I think. Yeah. Sort of after VHS and DVD later on. Mm-hmm. Because I seem to recall in the 80s, it was almost totally forgotten. Well, lots of films became cult in the 90s, like Night of the Demon yeah, yeah, and yeah. The Wicker Man. And well, Night of the Demon was already well on its way by the 80s. Yeah. That would, yeah, I think The Haunting was just slightly afterwards. Right. Yeah. The 80s was a time when there was a lot of writing about films. Yes. You got a lot of magazines like Starburst mm. and in America Starlog, who's were suddenly writing about older films and right. genre films. Yeah. Fangoria. And, yeah, you'd never had magazines like this prior to the 1980s, really. Mm. So suddenly lots of films were getting dragged out of the closet yeah. and given a new sort of run at it. And the, the haunting kind of missed on that. There's because, also... There's because also it never, sorry. I was just going to say, because it never really got shown much on telly in the 80s. There's also the rise of... So there's the rise of popular writing about about genre but there's also the rise of academic writing about genre so mm. genre theory becomes a big thing in the late 90s or the late 80s and the 90s and so you have people like well people like Mark Kermode writing about yeah. horror films and it starts to become you know starts to become authorised and I think The Haunting was part of that as well well and yes and then you got um, people like Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg announcing to the world that it's one of their favourite films. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, uh, yes, so all of a sudden... And I, I think it doesn't quite deserve it, mm. but nearly does. Great sound. So the sound design is the famous thing, isn't it? Well, it's on Blu-ray, and it looks gorgeous, right. like Manina. Right. Or however you pronounce it, the uh, French one I was talking about yes. earlier, which looks nice and crisp for most of it but they've not cleaned up any of the blemishes. Mm, right. And every time there's a real change, for about half a minute before and half a minute afterwards, on two of them particularly, the whole picture just starts smudging and wow. all sorts. It's dreadful. They've not, just obviously not had the money to clean it up properly. Yeah. But The Haunting just looks gorgeous. Yeah. Although, because he was using experimental lenses... There are lots of bits where it falls slightly out of focus and things like this or where the picture's bent. 
mm-hmm. because you know they were using stuff that they'd not really used much before. Yeah, but mostly it looks great. Mm. But the soundtrack—they've not done anything with the soundtrack. Right, it's still in mono. Okay, wow. and it doesn't sound much cleaned up. Right, and that's probably for the best because the way it works with the soundtrack on the haunting—I mean, for anybody who's not seen it. Knock knock. Yes, last yeah. year in yeah, Doctor yeah, Who, yeah. it was a direct yeah. rip off of the haunting, mm-hmm. and uh, for various reasons. Which, if you see the haunting and you see knock knock, you'd understand. But yeah, I think if you tried to mess around with the soundtrack for the haunting, you'd probably mess up what makes it work. Yeah. So they just left it, and that was all to their best. Mm. Um, let's have some more comments, shall we? Okay. Bit of a shorter one this time. Phil Markham. From first to fifth, he puts season 12 for the perfect blend of Doctor and Companions, and all the stories were superb. Season 5, the monster season. Say no more. Season 8. And, and he doesn't. <laughs> season 8, bringing, more, bringing in more of the unit family, Joe and the Master made it feel more comfortable than the previous season. Season 26, the show was getting to where it wanted to go, with the actors feeling more confident in the roles, and the Andrew Cartmel master plan was almost in full swing. Still hate Ghostlight, though, but the other three stories make it special. And finally, he puts season 23. This is here more as a childhood memory of how exciting it was as a 10 and 11-year-old, with the series as just one big adventure. When was it? What year was season 23? 86. So 10, 11-year-old... So he's talking about, so he's born 75, 76? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Which means he would I'm just trying to compare him to me. Mainly to justify the ghost light. <laughs> ghost light remark. <laughs> I'm trying to work out how old... Well, if he was 10 or 11 light. for 23, yes. three years later, he'd been 13 Yeah. Yeah, perfect age for ghost light. Well, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Ghost light is one of those ones that might be... For a 13-year-old, either too old or not old enough. Yes, possibly. Yeah. Actually, Ghostlight was one of the... I was in my late teens and early 20s when McCoy was the Doctor. Mm. And I hated it at the time and grew to love it afterwards. But Mm. Ghostlight was one of the ones I liked. Yes. So as a... What season was it? As a 21, 22-year-old? Yes. Ghostlight was right for 21, 22. Yeah. And probably not right for 13. I would have been 11, 12 and liked it. Ghostlight? Yeah. Yeah. Probably because you just hadn't probably. quite hit the cusp of, oh, is this what Doctor Who is now? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Because that's where I was at season 18. And season 18 was me looking at the screen and thinking, oh, is this what Doctor Who is now? Yeah. And obviously. Still got that today, right? So what season are we talking about next? Well, the one that came in fifth, (coughs) which is a leap from 15.8% to 26.8%. So that is more than a 10% leap. So we are talking the top five or way out in front. Mm -hmm. In fifth place is season 26. So Ghostlight. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's... At the time, at the time, I preferred... I preferred Curse of Fenric because Curse of Fenric was possibly the last time Doctor Who frightened me. Watching, At watching the time, Curse of Fenric when it was on. Ghostlight was my favourite of season 26 on yeah. first broadcast. Yeah. 
And I think well, I think Ghostlight's overtaken Curse of Penrith for me mm. since the only story that I've never reappraised and it's never sort of gone up in my estimations is Battlefield. Well, see, Battlefield is my second favourite of the season. Right. Yeah, I prefer it to Curse of Fenric. Yeah. Only because I think Curse of Fenric takes itself a bit too seriously and then at the end it kind of falls apart in the last episode for, for reasons we went through mm. a couple of weeks ago. So let no need to go over them again. I like Battlefield because I think it's... Um, got one of those uniquely Doctor Who stories. Yeah. It's one of... Well, you were talking about conceptual when it was season 18, right? Yeah. yeah. His, see, Bidmead's idea of conceptual is scientifically conceptual. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think when Doctor Who is at the top of its game, not necessarily at its most popular or at its most well-produced, but at its most imaginative, mm. is when it goes story conceptual mm -hmm. and so you've got things like the mind robber yeah and in the new series i think in the forest of the night is also true with this and mm -hmm. it might not be popular now it might not be popular ever but maybe one day it will be yeah but i think in the forest of the night and the mind robber and battlefield mm. all share that thing where somebody looked at it and said okay doctor who doesn't need to tell these kinds of stories. Let's see what other kind of a story it can tell. And I, there are production things with Battlefield, but I think Battlefield really is Doctor Who using its imagination properly. For me, I don't think it's it's quite as conceptual as Mind Robber or Forest of Night. I think it's it kind of does what Silver Nemesis does. I mean, in fact, there's there's sort of strong connections with Silver Nemesis for me. But Battlefield is taking a myth and saying... But it's got that story structure, I think, that kind of chase story structure. Yes, it's taking a myth. Well, but yeah, but that's not... the concept. Yeah. Taking the myth and saying, well, what if yeah. this myth is actually something that's come back in time from the future mm. and from the Doctor's own future? But it's... I... Never in Doctor Who before, really, had anybody said, you had that thing in Time Lash. Yeah. And you also had the thing, the same thing in Face of Evil, where you said, what if the Doctor had been here before? Mm. And you're dealing with the aftermath of what the Doctor did last time that we just haven't seen. Yeah. Battlefield says, well, okay, what if the Doctor had been there before? Yes. But it was in the Doctor's future, so the Doctor doesn't know yeah. what he's done. Yeah. I mean, that's neat. That's, that's just that's I, part of the concept. It wasn't quite original for me. It still, it still felt. I mean, Knights of God was doing that kind of futuristic. Futuristic. Well, this was the trouble with Battlefield. It didn't do it futuristically, did it? No. It was supposed to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still, you know, unlike anything else that's on television at that point. Well, this is this what is I'm Do saying. Doctor Who doing things that is unlike other things. Which As is a production, Battlefield isn't the best. No. But the concept of yeah. saying, let's take a myth and let's make it real, yes, give it a grounding in reality, yeah, was original for the series mm -hmm. in the same way as it was in The Mind Robber, where they did it with fiction, yeah, in a way. Um, do you want to know what came fourth? Okay. Right, the top four are not going to be any surprise to anybody. Okay. It's the order of the top four, I suppose, that might be a surprise. Right. 
Um, and the one that comes in fourth is season seven. Okay. Which basically means three hinge cliffs at the top yes, three. Yeah, which doesn't season, surprise me. No, season seven on 35.3%, which again is nearly 10 points up from uh, season 26. Mm-hmm. That was the only one I thought seriously had a chance of breaking the Hinchcliffe Holmes yeah. stranglehold. And actually it doesn't really come close because there's another big leap up to the top three. Right, yes. Season seven, I mean, I'm on record of saying it lots of times. I don't like the idea of it being the same story sort of four times in a row, as it were. Mm. And they do it really well. Yes. And I can understand why people like it. Yeah. But I just think there's a lack of imagination there. I always think, so I always think of season seven and think it's the same story three times. Yeah, but then, Spearhead from Space is a bit different. But then when I watch it, I start watching it Spearhead from Space and I don't get bored until, yeah, no, until no. I've gone past Inferno. So I think it's it's the extras that they add to it. So it's the same basic story, but they do... And you couldn't keep on doing it. No. But and they, because of the things they do, yeah. Inferno, when Terence Dick says, we can't just do it again, no. let's do yeah. this instead. Yeah, which, I mean, that's an ex, that's an exceptional an ex, idea. Yeah. That's a really sort of first-class idea. Or the, 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 the virus outbreak in... But what you've just said about Battlefield, Salary. isn't that also true of Inferno? Alternative... A trip to an alternative reality. Yeah. That's kind of a done and dusted sci-fi idea. Yes. Yeah. It's done really well. Yes, but it's a done and dusted idea that relies on the likability of the characters. So the the idea itself isn't the original thing. It's what you do within those with the characters. The issue with Inferno is that it doesn't go far enough. Yeah. You go into the alternative reality and you're still stuck in that damn installation. Yeah. And you don't you get to meet the characters mm. the brigadier with his scar and his uh, eye patch yes and uh, Liz Shaw with the brunette wig yes and her thigh length boots yeah but you don't get to find anything out about this alternative version of Earth really no you get to hear a few things yeah and of course you know you get to sort of learn that it's a fascist state yeah but you don't really get to see any of it. Well, there, I mean, so there's there's a limit to the sophistication of the writing mm. of the time. That if if it had been Robert Holmes or if Robert Holmes had been script editing, there might have been a bit more of a rich, a richly sort of world build around. Well, it. I'm sure. I think if Malcolm Hulk had written that script, mm. he would yeah. have done what he did in the Silurians. Yeah. In the Silurians, when he realizes oh my god we're halfway through a seven episode story I've got to do something mm-hmm. here all of a sudden you take a detour into London for an episode where yeah. you see the plague breaking out yeah yeah. that to me and I, I it works without it and yes. it's a lot of people's favourite story yeah. Inferno just needed an episode in the middle where you actually get to see what okay. the alternative world is so like so Inferno needed more money <laughs> available to it, you get I don't the impression know if it's that, that much more money because it did have location and stuff like this. It was just a case of which locations they chose. Yeah, I just get the feeling that it was a cheap, it was the cheaper story. So the locations are all in this, this disused, this factory. So obviously they went to the factory, <clears throat> got it for however long a week, did all the outside stuff, and then they have like three or four standing sets. That they do, so it is like a yes and it no. It does feel like a cost cutting, cost cutting activity. Well, not so much that they didn't 
at the sort of not quite eleventh hour, but suddenly mm. decide to put monsters in it, and then yeah. have to come up with extras and costumes for monsters. Mm. They did have money at their disposal. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't. It wasn't something that they couldn't have done. No, it just to me showed a lack of imagination in that yeah. they got so far into the process that they said this needs something extra. Oh, why don't we do an alternative universe bit? Yeah. But nobody had the wherewithal to think, well, if we're going to do an alternative universe, let's actually see the alternative universe. Yeah. But then if you think about all the stories together, so the Silurians is very much sort of more tunnels base. Then you've got Ambassador's Death, which really does go everywhere. I mean, it's got it's got well, it a, sort of quite does. a large range of... When it comes down to it, though, it's basically three locations. Yeah. It's the, the the site where Liz is imprisoned. Yeah. It's the Space Institute. And yeah. then it's the... Well, that's about it, really. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It, Ambassadors of Death, by about halfway through, you do start to think, right, are we just going to keep going between these two places? Right. Yeah. But there is a variety within the There's three variety, stories yeah. of, of sort of settings. I think that's why Ambassadors of Death suffers a bit. Mm. Because... Whereas with the Silurians, you've got the bit where you go into London with the plague. And with Inferno, you've got the bit where you go to the alternative Earth with the alternative versions of everybody. Mm. Ambassadors of Death doesn't quite have that sort of, this is the bit where. Well, you've got perfectly going into space. space. That's quite a a big, I mean, that is a a big moment. But I don't think that's quite... I don't think it works as well as those no. other two things. No, no, which is possibly why Ambassador of Death isn't yeah. considered the greatest story. No, to, uh, I mean, it's really, it's just John Pertwee in a couple of, you yeah. know, in a small set. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, season seven is, is again, it's got that sort of feeling of being distinctive. It's got that feeling oh, of, yeah, yeah, yeah. of being an enclosed, an enclosed series. And I never get bored with it. No, and it all works really well. Mm. I just like, Doctor Who, when it has more variety. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, I kind of like it when it's quirky. Not yeah. always, and obviously I'm a huge Hinchcliffe and Holmes fan. Yeah. But I think actually the Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories are pretty quirky in their own way. Yeah. They're, let's do hammer pastiches, that's mm. a quirk. Yeah. So And so know. now we're going to have to talk about Hinchcliffe and Holmes three times. In the trot. <laughs> and try to make it distinctive. Well, not really. <laughs> we'll just say what they are and what points they got and we'll okay. go home. Right. Um, all right. It's the top three. And actually, this was so weird. There was one that I thought was going to win. Right. And right from the get-go, I suddenly realised it wasn't going to win. Mm. And then it was, so which ones, if... The other one that I thought would be second was going to win. Which one of the other two then was going to be third? All of which is by way of preview to saying none of them were. Okay. One of them won on 48.4% and the other two tied on 42.6%. Okay. Right. So I might as well say the lot because it'd be... Yes. Yeah. So season 13 won. Yes. And season 12 and 14 drew. Right. Okay. I thought season 14, going in, before any of the votes had come in, I thought season 14 was I'm going to have to be reminded what's in season 14. So season 14 ends with... Um, Talents of Talents Wang Chang. Has it's, Robots of Death, Deadly yeah. Assassin, yeah. Hand of Fear, yeah. which is... Mask of Mandragora. Mm. And, and that's the face first, of evil. That's, 
So Mask of Mandra- it's from Mask of Mandragora to Fifth Talons. Okay, yeah. And season thirteen is from um, Terror of the Zygons to the Seeds of Doom. Yeah, but see, I always thought of season thirteen as a bit up and down in between. Yes, less consistent. I always thought see of that of season fourteen. Did yeah, well, so obviously I'm, that's yeah what I'm other not, people think as well. Yeah, I've never thought highly of um, Mask of Mandragora. I thought that was. It's a bit of a sort of stretched story. I think it's a really good story, but sadly, they've not put quite enough humour in it yeah. to make it very dull. Yeah. I mean, again, what we were saying about Keeper of Traken being a BBC Shakespeare adaptation with the Doctor dropped into it. And that's, it, the that's exactly Mandragora. what the Mask of yeah, Mandragora yeah. is. The dialogue doesn't really work amongst the locals. It's sort of... It just I feels know, I think stage. it's really well written. Yeah. I just think... It doesn't feel quite Doctor Who enough, right? Yeah. Like the brain of Morbius is just like insanely fun, yes. And almost everything that happens in the brain of Morbius is given this Robert Holmes makeover where he says, "Right, we're doing a pastiche. Let's mm. not bother, yeah, making it authentic. Let's just make it fun." I get bored by the brain of Morbius. Do you I really? Find it really difficult to sit through it. <gasps> yeah, I don't, I'm not. I'm not sort of driven by <clears> it. <throat> And I don't know why. I love I love Maddock. I think any scene with Philip Maddock in it is really good. But there's just interminable scenes with the sisterhood, sisterhood of the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they chant and chant and chant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know. It just feels... I, mean, I know and it's there's a fine studio. line between claustrophobic and dull. And for me, it just goes into the dull. Brain of Morbius also starts with one of the greatest sort of I don't know, ridiculous Chekhov's gun moments in the mm. history of the series. Yeah. It's like, at the end of Terror of the Zygons, the Doctor says, right, Sarah, let's get you back to London. Mm. And then the next story is Pyramids of Mars. Oh, we arrived here, yes. but like 70 years too early. Yeah. TARDIS must have been blown off course. Oh, it's okay, that happens. I'll get you to the end, I'll get you to London at the end of this story. Next story, they're right at the end of the universe. Yeah. On Zeta Minor. And the Doctor just says, well, that happens. Yes. Next story after that, they're on the planet Khan. And instead of the Doctor saying, oh, well, that happens, he says, oh, it must be the Time Lord's fault. Right. Yeah. Because it's a story about the brain of a Time Lord. Yes. But where he suddenly gets the idea that it's the Time Lord's fault Mm. before he even knows where they are. Yeah. When it's the third story in a row that the TARDIS has gone off course. Mm, yeah. And that always sets my teeth on edge. Yes. When he yeah. does his shouting at the Time Lords bit at yeah. the start. Yeah. Um, I tell you what, I had a feeling about. Wasn't that 12 should have won, mm. but that there are elements in 12 that maybe actually mean it should be the most popular of these three. Right. It's got Harry Sullivan. Yeah. It's still got... It's got that continuing story across all five stories where each of them goes straight from one into the next. Yeah. Which gives it, in spite of the sort of up-down quality, it gives mm. it a consistency Yeah, that you don't get in season 13 and 14. Mm-hmm. It's got Sarah and Harry... Yeah. And Tom Baker learning what he's doing. Yeah. And I th- I don't know. And the the low points are are 
less than half the <laughs> less than half the series. Well, the I low mean, points of the Sontaran experiment, which is yes, two, two episodes, episodes. Yeah. and let's face it, as a low point, an yeah. all location Dartmoor shoot. Yeah, even if the script ain't brilliant. And it's not the worst script ever. Mm. But even if the script ain't brilliant, it's not that much of a low point. No. People would kill to have that low point in some of these other seasons. Yeah. And Revenge of the Cybermen, mm. and whatever anybody says about Revenge of the Cybermen, there is an awful lot of love for that story yeah. because of A, the book, and B, it being that really early VHS release. Yes. So yeah. people would watch Revenge of the Cybermen over and over yeah. and just absolutely fall in love with it mm-hmm. and quote the dialogue at each other. You see, it's, for me, that familiarity has actually diminished the series because you have Genesis of the Daleks, which I had on on the audio version. Well, yeah. And Revenge of the Cybermen, which I got quite early on. But we're not talking about you. We're talking about why they no, are I'm, where but, they are in the list. No, but I'm trying to work out why I didn't vote it above season 13 and 14 and I wonder if it's a similar well, thing didn't. for other people yeah but no I'm so I'm now trying talking about the things in it mm. that I th- thought maybe would have yeah brought it higher yeah. I think of the three Hinchcliffe and Holmes seasons it's the easiest to watch right it's the one that feels easiest to put on yeah if you see what I mean like a pair of so again, again, like a pair of shoes. Again, the... if I do if I do a rewatch, which I do occasionally, I can start with say Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and then I don't get bogged down in a story until. Wouldn't you start with the Time Warrior? No, I just well sometimes I did once do a a Pertwee rewatch, and I got through all of Pertwee, and then I carried on into Tom Baker. And then I got bogged down in either Planet of Evil or The Brain of Morbius. Mm. That's where I got bogged down. So actually, season 12, I sailed through it's an easy, quite happily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which just makes me wonder if season 12... I mean, they're much of a muchness. It's drawn with 14. 13 yeah. is a little way ahead, but yeah. it's not so far ahead as everything else is behind. No. Yeah. Just made me wonder... As I was putting the votes together, if season 12 wouldn't poke its head up and actually yeah. take the lead at some point, mm-hmm. it didn't. Yeah. Um, 14's got that break in the middle. Yeah. Which kind of... I always thought of season 14 as the most consistently high quality. Mm. But that break in the middle, I guess, does make it feel as a season a bit bitty. Because mm-hmm. you've got sort of a sort of... A, hangover of Sarah Jane before she disappears two stories in. Yeah. And a story with no companion. Yeah. Then in a three-story introduction for Leela, mm-hmm. and then the character trails off dramatically the following year. Yeah. Which is kind of a bit of a sad thing. Mm. But in season 14, she gets a really strong run in season 14. Yeah. But it's only half the year. Mm-hmm. So it makes the, it makes the season feel like it's not a season but a collection of bits of other seasons. Yeah, I find it difficult to define... I think that's why I find it difficult to define both 13 and 14, because of Sarah Jane's kind of brief comeback. It's just It just feels like half of season 14 belongs in season 13 for me. And a little bit of 13 feels like it should be in 12. And yeah. of course, Terror of the Zygons should yeah, have been yeah. in 12, yes, which is why it feels like it should have been in 12. Yeah, so everything feels like slightly staggered. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. actually, that makes it almost... 
like the whole three seasons are more of a consistent thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually raises the three the three seasons because I still think this is this is the period when Doctor Who was at its most until recently the, the, the most in the public eye, the most popular, and the most sort of. And yeah, the funny know, thing is ground shifting. But you can look at those three series, those three seasons. And altogether, it comprises 17 stories. Mm. And outside of Elizabeth Sladen and Louise Jameson, in those 17 stories, there are only speaking parts for three women. Yeah. Across the entire 17 stories. Mm. I've exaggerated slightly, but not that much. Right. That's not very good, is it? No. Okay. <laughs> well, so so I'm writing... So one of the things I'm writing about at the moment is the demons. Um and about witchcraft and demons, and the demons has two female characters, and there's so many male characters, so there's like 12 to 15 male characters. There always are in Doctor Who. Yeah, and and we get the same in 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 um, Tom Baker stories, we have the same sort of issues, but I think in Tom Baker it's, it's kind of worse. Oh, way. no, no, I'm saying it's absolutely shocking. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. something like... In most of the Pertwee era, not all of it, but a good deal of it, you will get very male-centric stories. Yes, yeah. But you will at least get at least one, if not two or three, female characters who've got a bit to do yes. or turn up quite often, or at least are there to make it look like there's to make it at least look like there's a bit of balance. Yeah. You get to seasons twelve, thirteen, and fourteen. Mm. And the balance just completely disappears. I mean, the one strong female, so the sisterhood of Khan, should be this powerful female, female kind of role, but actually they're shown to be kind of ineffectual, saved well, by the doctor with a firework. And but that's... at least they're there as a presence in the story. Uh, yeah, but almost like a decorative presence. I mean, it's well, sort of yeah. Well, at least they're doing stuff. Yeah. And at the end of the story, mm. they help the Doctor save the day. Yes. And um, they, because of their affiliation with the Time Lords, they have become quite an important part of the mythology. Yeah. So there's kind of a... So the, so the Sisterhood of Khan actually make an impression. Yeah. You Seeds of Doom, you've got Emilia Ducar, but she's just a <laughs> comedy character in maybe two episodes? I you don't know. The... Is she in more than two? Yeah, you get the feeling maybe Robert Holmes wasn't the best at, at writing for women. I mean, no. Talons of Wen Chiang, you have a basically two a female couple of prostitutes in yeah. a couple of episodes yeah. Yeah. and the old woman who says yeah. about the onions. Yeah, it's unfortunate, isn't it? Yes. And there's no, there's no female characters in, in Genesis. Genesis. Oh, there's one. No, there is in Genesis because there's a female. Oh, Betan at the end. Yeah, yeah. but she's but almost yeah. barely there. Yeah, she's not in, to follow the Doctor. None in Pyramids of Mars. None in Revenge of the Cybermen. No. None in Planet of Evil. Yeah. None in the Santaran experiment. Yeah. You've got Vira in the Ark in Space. And you've got the nurse in Nurse Ratchet. It's not Nurse Ratchet. In, in Terror of the Zygons. But again, that's a really tiny part, really, yeah. compared yeah. to the rest of it. Yeah, it is a problem. It's... But on the other hand, you do get Leela, who's one of the strongest female companions of the time. And... She's the strongest she gets in her first three, three stories. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just weird that it just shows that for those three seasons, Doctor, because 
The term Boy's Own and Doctor Who have often gone hand in hand. Mm. Terry Nation writes Boy's Own stories in the Doctor Who, Den Blake, whatever. But I think that sort of, for boys, very much, rather than for children per se, thing comes to the fore, Mm. I think, in 12, 13 and 14. Mm. I think this whole doing the horror films thing, Mm. because I don't know, it's probably changed now, certainly I think it's changed now, but at the time, in the mid-70s, it felt like getting into horror and monsters and stuff like that was a thing that boys did. Yeah. And girls wouldn't be getting into that stuff. I mean, there would be some that were, so obviously I'm generalising. Yeah. But it just felt like these three seasons were the absolute zenith of that approach to making the programme. Yeah. They're great, though. No question. <laughs> well, there's something that they share... With the Cartmel seasons, which is why I think 25 and 26 Mm. are as high as they are, which is a richness in the dialogue and the characterisation. Yeah. And I think whatever else you say about 24, 25 and 26, Mm. from Paradise Towers onwards, there's a richness in the characterisation and the dialogue and the amount of thought that's gone into what people are saying that you hadn't had for... Nearly a decade, really. No, yeah. Off and on. Yeah. But even somebody like Christopher H. Bidmead, I don't think his characters were speaking. No, no. He wrote wrote ciphers. Yeah. There are isolated examples. Keeper of Trakan. Yeah. But these were isolated. Maybe not even Keeper of Trakan. I mean... A bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, It's Johnny Byrne, and I think Ark in Space... Arc in space. Arc of Infinity is distinguished by not a lot of and not throughout. Mm. But I think Arc of Infinity is distinguished from a few of those other stories around it by an improvement in the dialogue. Right. Not the story. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I think 12, 13 and 14 have got really rich, memorable, quotable dialogue. Yeah. And that's what makes them stand out yeah. as much as all the other things like the production values and the acting. There was a, I shudder to bring this up, there was a ding-dong on Twitter about Talons of Wang Chiang Again. Not, not too long ago. Yeah. Um, and somebody mentioned the fact that if you like Talons of Wang Chiang, then you must be racist. Oh, I saw some of this. And I think that's... So the thing that struck me is it is, it is worth talking about when you're talking about Talons of Wang Chiang. It doesn't ruin the story. But one thing I think they could have done with Talons of Wen Chiang to save it would make would be to make the character a, a Western magician dressed like a Chinese character. To make the character itself. Because that's what magicians well, at the time. They draw on the tradition of the magicians that. at the time. But he is a Chinese character dressing as a yes. ostentatiously Chinese character. Yeah. Yeah. And he's exaggerating. When he's but a, but a Western actor playing a Chinese character, playing extreme Chinese characters. Well, there weren't that any the Chinese problem. actors available, yeah. which is the issue. Apart from the ones they cast in Talons of Wen Chiang as as kind of. But they weren't. Thug yeah, but this was a lead role. Yeah, you're not going to give a lead role to somebody who yeah. doesn't have any yeah. lines. Yeah, but it would mean. But would it? Wouldn't it have been more interesting to have, um, the actor playing? A Western character well, it playing might a Chinese have. character. It yeah, gives another it, dimension and it taps into the actual tradition of the time. 
but Victorian times. Yes, but you didn't actually have Chinese magicians at the time. Uh, yes, but that character was based on Fu Manchu, who yes. was a Chinese character. Yeah, and that, that's the problem because Fu Manchu is is mm. by any any measure a racist a racist stereotype character and, and a very right wing and written but written like a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah. When there were just. But what Talents of Wen Chang does, yeah. that I think ameliorates it slightly, I'm not going to say it's not an issue, no. but what it does is uh, Lee Sen Chang exaggerates mm. the mannerisms. Yes. Which I think makes the people he's exaggerating the mannerisms to mm. look worse than he does. Yes. So it's almost like... There's a thing in Talents of Wen Chang where it's almost like Lee Sen Chang is given the most intelligent and the most superior role in the drama. Yes. Because he has to exaggerate for the rest of the cast because they're too stupid to understand that he shouldn't have to. Yeah. So somebody like... Because, I mean, you've got the um, Jago and Lightfoot thing. Yes. Lightfoot is written as intelligent in academic terms, but a bit of a klutz in um, social terms. Yeah. Whereas Jago is written as uh, very loquacious in yes. social terms, but not yeah. the most brightest of bulbs. Yes. So both of those two are written as slightly dim characters. Yeah. With glorious dialogue and wonderfully performed, but they're both yes. dim. Yes. Whereas Lee Sen Chang is intelligent and knows what he's doing. Yeah. He just happens to have fallen into this situation where he's the one who stumbled the, across the demon in the cellar. The, the problem... The, the the problem to what that is, the problem with that is the Chinese stereotype at the time includes a Chinese person feigning feigning being sort of traditional and superstitious, but in actual fact disguising himself as that, and in actual fact being this intelligent mastermind, which Li San Chang is. So it's not it's not necessarily like the of uh, what time? Do you mean it's the not the nineteen tens? No, nineteen ten. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the well, that's, that's the stereotype of China that they're tapping into. But that's that stereotype is the problem with the story. That sort of regurgitation of that stereotype is is a problem. Well, yes, but that's what the story is. But I think it could have been fixed at the time by by making it instead of tapping into the Fu Manchu, you tap into the Chinese magician idea at the time. But the point which is. is 50 years ago, they didn't think they needed to fix it. Yeah. And it's only now, 50 years further on, where we say they should have fixed it. Yeah, yeah. You can't really look back 50 years and tell them they should have looked 50 years into the future. Mm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, at the, at the moment, with with people being arrested for for sexual abuse from 40 years, years ago, 30 years ago, that's never really an excuse. I mean, it's not an equivalent. It's not a crime, and it's not an equivalency. But the excuse that they sh- they didn't know better I'm because not it was excuses for it. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not an issue. Yeah, I'm just saying I think the issue is ameliorated slightly. Yeah, by the fact that Lee Sen Chang is clearly being made okay. the most intelligent okay. uh, member of that production. Yeah, outside from the Doctor, obviously. Yeah. So I mean, <clears throat> well. All right. I mean, I disagreed with with the the original statement on Twitter. 
I don't even know what it was. That you're racist if you like Talons of Wayne Cheyenne. Oh, yeah. Well, that's like saying you're a sexist if you enjoy... Or you're a paedophile if you like the first series of The Thick of It. Yes. Yeah. Which clearly clearly you wouldn't have to be. On that note. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for bringing this up, Matt. I wasn't going to talk about that. No, I think think it should be talked about. I think it, it has to be talked about. Every, if you're going to talk about Talons of Wang Chai... Well, we won't. Well, it's part of the season. Uh, well, yeah, but we didn't also talk about the Pyramids of Mars. That's because it's great. And flawless. Oh, I don't think it's flawless. <laughs> Look at that fourth episode. Yeah, I know. <clears throat> I, but actually, actually re, re-watching that fourth episode, what I thought lasted the whole fourth episode actually lasts half the fourth episode. That's not my issue with the fourth episode. Right. My issue with the fourth episode is, oh, we need to get rid of this person. Okay, let's just create a time loop out of nowhere and stick him in that. Okay. So the the very, very end of it. Okay. Yeah, but it's the same with a lot of stories from that period of the program. Mm. What do you do with the brain of Morbius? Let short circuit circuit his circuitry and topple him off a cliff. Uh, What do you do with... uh, this giant plant creature that's filled with spores, drop a bomb on it. Yeah. Well, they've spent the previous three episodes saying the last thing you want to do is blow it up because those spores will be all over the atmosphere. Yes. And in the end of the story, they blow it up. Yeah. Most of the Hinchcliffe and Holmes stories end with either deus ex machinas or, in other ways, extremely risable endings. Doctor Who's always been about the journey. Yes. Not about the destination. Simon Burrows yeah. says, In first place, Season 7 set the Pertwee era stall out early in its new setting and provided the template for the next four years, with mm. stories as varied as Mad Scientist and Alien Invasion acting as ways of conveying deeper social messages about the environment mm. and with significantly less gurning from the Doctor than we would see as his run progressed. He obviously doesn't remember that episode of Spearhead from Space. Yeah, there's more gurning in season seven, if anything, isn't there? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in um, the cave, uh, Silurians well, as well. Well, there's there? quite a lot in his his affectation of G-force. Yeah, when flying in Ambassadors the... of Death. <laughs> and there's probably some when he's crossing between the uh, dimensions. In so apart, apart from in every story in season seven, then that's yeah. a correct statement. He says, it's amazing climax Inferno is rightfully a fan favourite. Mm. Uh, second, season 26, the scheming exploits of the Doctor and their impact on his companion are brought home to bear with this terrific group of complex and absorbing stories which ensured, in my eyes, the original series went out with a bit of a bang. Battlefield, although cliched, is an enjoyable romp, playing on the return of the Brigadier. Ghostlight, despite being unfathomable, unfathomable in parts, looks very pretty, and Fenric is a stone-cold classic. Survival is probably Amy's best performance, and is only let down by Halen Pace being horribly out of place. Feels like a series rather than a collection of individual stories, and has its own groove, almost unique in the history of Doctor Who, mm-hmm. certainly at that point in time. Mm-hmm. Uh, third, he's got season 13, Tom Baker's brilliant, otherworldly portrayal, Elizabeth Sladen's plucky, go-getting Sarah Jane, Terrifying yarns encompassing horror, superstition and Bond-style action make this season one of the all-time greats. In fourth, he's got season 14, 
Mandragora, Hand of Fear, Assassin, Face of Evil, Robots of Death, Talons, sees progression in development from season 13, taking all that was good in that era, but really upping the production values. Robots of Death and Mandragora both look gorgeous. Make these feel a bit more artsy, while maintaining some of the straight-out horror from the previous year, and Louise Jameson's first three stories off the bat, what a high-water mark. And then, in fifth place... Season 16, The Key to Time. Weirdo. (laughs) Okay, he says, they're dodgy acting, wildly varying scripts, and a sense of the season overreaching, the Armageddon factor, but some absolutely classic moments with some fascinating ideas and concepts, which make this incredibly watchable and a lot of fun. He says, really enjoy Five's first series, but that's probably a reflection of my age and that being the first Doctor Who I remember watching, but Earthshock, Kinder and Castrovalva have great ideas in them, although clearly Time Flight is just horrible. So I'm guessing 19 was the one that didn't quite make the grade. Okay. And there we go. Hmm. And I can't remember what that third film I watched was. So, so I've, watched, I've watched something. Is it a new release? Um... Because no. that's what we're doing here, reviewing new releases. No, but it's into its second season, which I haven't seen yet. So it's the television series of The Exorcist, which I thought wouldn't be very good. And I watched it. I watched Stranger Things, which is quite good. Are they doing... It is a new release then. It's new on telly. Uh, so the, the, it's current. The first series that I've seen of The Exorcist <clears throat> uh, was last year or maybe earlier this year. And now they're doing the second. They're into right. the second series. What I mean is, is it current? It is current. Yes. Um, and so, yeah. is it one exorcism across the course of so, the season? So this is the or is it thing. a different one each week? And this is a spoiler. So this is a spoiler alert. That originally, originally it looks as though it's going to be a reboot, a sort of a remake of that the uh, the original film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but an updated version. So it's a suburban house. Uh, a teenager with a mother. In this case, it's a family. Um, and then it extends it into a series by adding a kind of Rosemary's Baby element of a of a sort of a satanic cult made up of local dignitaries and the mayor and the local Catholic community is in on it as well. So there's a sort of complex interweaving. So it feels like a reboot. And then halfway through the series, it transpires that actually it's a sequel to the original so it's actually characters from the original, but grown up or in an older state, mm. and the return of this demon Pazuzu oh, yeah. um, to sort of wreak revenge on on this particular character, and it really holds up. So it's not a, a sequel to the film, but a sequel to the book, to the original book, the story of the book, and it's really well made. It's really frightening. Um, it kept me awake after a few episodes. It stretches it a little bit towards the end. It's got Ben Daniels playing the main the main character, who is connected with Doctor Who as the the sort of the person who failed to be cast as the Eighth as Doctor. the no. Um, he was in the running to be uh, Capaldi. So oh, really? the, the, yeah, in fact, he was he was Second either the sacrificial the sacrificial victim led led to the to the press as being the person who's definitely cast Ben Daniels. Yeah. Yeah. Oh really? I don't yeah. recall that. So from Law and Order and he's oh, on okay. House of Cards. Similar similar sort of age to Capaldi, similar sort of idea. 
Oh. Watching this, you can see what he would could have done with the Doctor. Speaking of spooky stuff, I saw The Conjuring last night. Oh, and, uh, I don't. Yeah, those sorts of those kind of shock movies. I can't. I don't like going to see them in the cinema because they actually work really well on me. In that, I feel tense all the way through. I saw Annabelle and Insidious Two at the cinema. Now, see, I wasn't going to talk about it. I was right. just. That was an off-the-cuff remark, but yeah. <laughs> okay, then let's yeah. talk about The Conjuring. It works really well. Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, very good yeah, film. No. yeah, they're well put together, mm. but I, if I watch them at the cinema, then I'm in a constant state of anxiety. That's and then kind I, of how I come, supposed to happen. <laughs> not, not, but not a good sort of constant state of anxiety. I'm in that sort of level of, of waiting for the jump scares to happen that I'm not actually focused on the film. So there are ways of blending those jump scares in. Oh, I don't know. That... I thought they did a really good job of that in this one. I've not really? seen a lot of the others, right. but I thought they did a okay. really good job of that in this one. Okay. okay. I mean, I didn't think it was perfect, but I thought for the type of film it is, yeah. I thought they did a really good job of it. Yeah. But the acting, it's got some very good actors in it. Yeah. And because I... I've seen quite a few of these sorts of things from the reviews I do from the magazine yeah. and a lot of the time it's ciphers and atrocious dialogue mm. this felt mostly like real characters like real people yeah and like real situations I think I prefer watching them on television where where that kind of the intensity I don't it sounds oh, well, bit it less, sounds ridiculous yeah, yeah. because they have a bigger effect greater effect in the cinema but that effect distracts for me, distracts from the quality of the acting or the storyline. It's just every scene is designed to lead up to something jumping out at you. And that means you can't you can't take in what's happening in the scene. If you're watching it on the television, I can. So I've actually enjoyed them more watching them on a small screen than a mm -hmm. big screen. Fair enough. Well, I quite like it. Right, shall we uh, call it a night? Okay, yeah. Um... Next week, we are doing the top 10 new series stories. Okay. So, that's what we'll be back for next week. Well, Possibly with more than just two of us. Although we've still gone for damn near an hour and a half. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Right, until next week then, I was JR. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. Uh -huh.